Hi, I'm Dave Merlino. I'm Dustin Sweet, and this is the Know Their Story podcast. We talk to veterans about their time in service, returning home from war, and transitioning out of the military. Hopefully along the way, we'll inspire you to do the same with a veteran in your life. Because sometimes all it takes to make the world a better place is sitting down with a friend to know their story. Okay, we are up and running. Episode 20, milestone episode of the Know Their Story podcast. That's crazy. Um, We've joked before, that's about 19 more episodes than we thought we would get. (laughs) But people keep coming back to talk. And uh, what are your thoughts on this special episode, Dustin? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to, uh, be a part of this ridiculous series and the two of you, uh, brought me into it and I'm really happy to be here with the both of you again. That's, that's how I feel about this episode, Dave. Are you implying we have a special guest for a special episode? A special guest for a special episode. A very special boy. (laughs) You guys have low standards, but uh, that's all I can say. It's, uh, but you know, I, I'm uh, very pleased that you guys have given me an opportunity to talk about some good people that I knew in Vietnam. And in the well, world. and our wives have even lower standards for having married us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dig! I would say, gentlemen, that we're all of the highest moral caliber. Yeah. yeah. But for uh, people listening on the audio channel who cannot see who we are talking with, this is a five-time Grammy nominee. No, wait. uh, Vietnam veteran, movie star, movie star of uh, the such films as Happy Birthday, Dad. It's pretty cherry. Check it out. on YouTube and Vimeo. The reason I say that is because Happy Birthday Dad is the reason that both this podcast and this movie started because this gentleman went to one of the film festivals with me at the end of our run when we're super jaded on him. And in that car ride, he started telling me his stories from Vietnam. And I thought, you know what? Hot damn, this needs to be a movie. And here we are these many years later completing that movie a uh, Vietnam veteran uh, with the U.S. Army. He was a LERP ranger as well as a member of Apache Troop, um, 1969 to 1970. He has written many tomes and novels about his work in Vietnam, such as Acceptable Loss and MIA Rescue. Also, he has just completed his second book in the Chasing Romeo series, Belly of the Beast, um do you name any characters after us in this one (laughs) it's uh you know the toughest thing when you're writing fiction novels is coming up with names i have a book of just names and what i do is i go through ancestry.com and i find anybody who's ever been connected (laughs) through through the timeline going yeah that'll work that'll work that'll work well there are many screenplays of ours that have your name in them I'm not sure of your name yet because I still have a voluminous amount of work to do on your introduction. Um, you guys, CIA agents in uh, the next Mirage, I believe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Where they want to come in and yell at the the bureaucrats. It's pretty much pretty much nailed me to a T. <laughs> well, the fun part was is that now I love humor. I love uh, military humor. It's dark humor, but I love military humor. It's uh, it, it's it's so. Much, 
enlightening. I mean, it's uh, it makes you see the world in a different different perspective. That is true. Uh, but after getting out of the military, you well actually you, you went back in then and were a journalist with the U.S. Army and talked your way into such uh, hard hitting stories as what's it like to ski in Germany on leave. Uh, <laughs> Um, he's been a firefighter, a uh, writer for Kung Fu Magazine. He's in the Kung Fu Hall of Fame for that work uh, and also worked for U.S. Customs and Board, well, U.S. Customs Service as a canine officer, uh, then a seized property specialist becoming into U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Uh, many people who are watching this may have noticed his name if you're watching on YouTube, uh, noticed his name and his face. That's because 12 million of you have watched him get shot on CBS News in 1970 and give a very calm interview after getting interviewed, as he will tell you later. It's because he was high as a kite on morphine. Um, but of that 12 million, only 81,000 have seen him do the follow-up interview at my kitchen table where he explained that, yes, he did survive. So we're going to spread the word further. Please welcome Sergeant Craig Jorgensen. I won't include the hero nickname because I know you hate it. <laughs> I do. I mean, it's, um, it's there are some there are some really actual heroes from Vietnam, and, and uh, I was lucky enough to. Again, I know some people say this, but it's true. When you look at your your friends and your buddies who have done so much more, and the people who haven't received the recognition, you know some real genuine heroes in your lives, and and I knew a few, and I was lucky to be with them. Well, I'm going to stick with what I told you all those years ago when we were sitting in our office in customs and I first saw that video and I told you that if someone had given me the nickname Hero, that would be on my business cards. <laughs> well, yeah, but uh, you're a better man than I am, sir. The, uh, the fact that I was slow to duck probably wasn't the, the smartest move. And by the way, getting shot hurt like hell. <laughs> Yeah, okay, well, I'll avoid, the, I'll avoid the CBS News question of what does it feel like to get shot? Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> and, and it cut the video. If you see the video, it, it, you don't see my first response. Is, is it okay to swear on this podcast? Um, why don't you just give a, um, a feeling of the word you use so we don't sure. have to mark it down as explicit? Sure, because, you know, he asked, I uh, stuck the microphone in my face. And he said, you know, uh, what does it feel like to get shot? And I think, I said, what the F do you think? And they, they, they trimmed that part because that's not appropriate for the evening news. And, I, and then um, he said, do you think you'll be getting out of the Vietnam War? And that's when I said, well, I already got three per parts counting that one. And I, I actually thought I was going home. I thought that, uh, you know, they were going to evacuate me back home. I'm glad they didn't because I had a chance to go back to my buddies. Um, and I'm glad I took that. Um, there's such a, a survivor's guilt thing that you go through even in the hospital getting shot, I knew I was going to be okay. I knew that, you know, it was great treatment. I had clean sheets. I had a pillow. I was actually treated better than the guys, you know, in the field. Um, and, and so I was kind of happy to go back to see the guys because I felt like, God, I'm abandoning them. And I got a chance to thank them as well. Well, so you're just assuming that you take a, a round through both legs, you've got a third purple heart coming. You, you'd already done that math. So for people on who've watched the YouTube clip, yes, it is three Purple Hearts, not four. They they get on us for the title of our saying, Veteran Explains the Day He Got His Third Purple Heart. It's like, it's four. 
Yeah. It's, not, it's not four. It's three. And that was uh, way too, too many. You know, that was actually. One was okay, though. Only two too many, not three too many. Well, the, the first one was just the first one was just minor shrapnel, and the shrapnel was, uh, you know, I still have a piece of shrapnel in my thumb, and uh, I crossed my Achilles tendon. The second one, I got shrapnel in my back from an RPG, and I got uh, uh, concussion, so it was elevated. And then the third one was uh, getting shot through both thighs, and let me tell you that uh, watching that front muscle thigh muscle pop out like a bad water balloon was like. Uh, this isn't really happening and uh you don't feel the pain right away it's uh that comes in a lot later and then yeah, uh, we, we got we got puppies we got a brand new puppy but um uh getting getting the shot of morphine nothing hurt i'll be honest with you that was uh you know god love doc uh, Devalley because uh when he gave me that shot of morphine it uh by the time I got back, there was like, la la land, go ahead and do it again. The worst thing is when they get you back to the hospital, they don't give you anymore. So, so it was like, uh, I'll take another shot now. We can't give it to you. They give you pills and, and whatnot. And, uh, but uh, they, the, the medics and the doctors and the nurses, they're actual heroes. To work in one of those uh, surgical hospitals in Vietnam, I don't know how they did it. That our whole ward was just covered with littered with young people that were just, you know, just, oh my God, missing limbs, uh, jaw bones. Uh, it, it, that scared me more than the jungle. And going back to my unit was a lot easier than I'd say being in the hospital. Well, and that's what we wanted to, to cover because Richard Threlkeld does say you had a one-way ticket out of the Vietnam yeah. War. And there, there is a, a, a myth around that that you would like to clarify, correct? Yeah, it wasn't. They were gonna send me up to Cameron Bay uh, for rest and recovery. They were going to do some physical therapy and stuff. And, and I thought, nah, I've had it. I'll, I'll go back to my, unit. I volunteer to go back stupidly. I volunteer to go back to my unit. And I say stupidly, cause you know, I just turned 20. I mean, I was all of, you know, I was 20 in February. So, um, yeah, it wasn't my brightest move. I could have gone up to the beach and probably had two or three more months of just, you know, recovery. But um, um, yeah, I volunteered to go back. So they gave me, they gave me a cane <laughs> on my legs, still had some um, stitches. I couldn't walk. Uh, you don't get right, so you have to hitchhike. So I was hitchhiking from Long Bend to get to Benoit so I could catch a, a flight to get up to Tain Inn. And uh, a truck driver pulled, you know, truck driver, military truck driver pulled over and on Long Bend. He said, hey, I'm going to, to Benoit. He says, oh, you know, get climb in. And I couldn't climb in because I, I couldn't climb too well. So I was literally muscling my way up. And he goes, what, what's wrong with you? And I said, oh, I got shot. He goes, <laughs> and he gave me that look like you guys give me all the time too. It was like, what in the hell? The look that Jim Brown gave me when I, Jim Brown gave me when I got back to the unit, like what in the hell are you coming back here for? Um, so yeah, it, uh, then when I got to my unit, they, they had already shipped my stuff home because this is a month later. You know, and, um, so they shipped my stuff home, supposedly, and you know, guy is occupying my hooch, so I had to kick him out. And uh, yeah, they didn't know what to do. With first sergeant was really a good guy, and uh, Jim, uh, Joe Sparacino, and he goes, just go back to your hooch. I we don't know what to do with you. And uh, then when the blues came back in from the field, you know, my buddy saw me, and then you know, I thought Jim Brown was going to kick the crap out of me. <laughs> it's like, what are you doing back, you idiot? And technically I was, uh, um, 
but I felt better to be amongst those guys again. I felt, you know, you know, better. Better than not doing the math of recovery, nurses, beach. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I didn't say I was bright, you know, and, and that was something that, you know, looking back on, I, I realized I, I, I stupidly made a, a error in judgment because I also made it back to the unit in time for Cambodia. You know? <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, um, but the good thing is we had a chance to rescue that other LERP team that got hit in Cambodia. And that was, that was important and special to me. So uh, we, we put together a group of about 15 volunteers and we were out there and we found two of the, the missing guys and the other two are still listed as missing in action. The fifth guy had made it back, but uh, uh, I'm very grateful we had a chance to do that for personal reasons. And we, we got a little far afield. We jumped right into it. The product of knowing each other for close to 20 years. Oh, shit. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, we, we glossed right by Dustin's first question. Go for it, Mr. Sweet. That's true. Uh, my first question, as always, is uh, how did you end up joining the service? Uh, my dad was a career Coast Guard. He was a career military. And we'd moved around the world, you know, my entire existence growing up. Uh, when he came, when he retired, we came back to Seattle where he was from. Um, my brothers, my two older brothers had been drafted and uh, I was going to join the Marines. I was, they had the best looking uniforms, So I was going to join the Marines and I, I wanted to serve. And I had a couple of reasons for serving. One is that I came from a military family and it was a thing that you did, you know, you, you served in the military. And, um, you know, we didn't know anything about Vietnam War. You believe the politicians at the time. So you're going for a good cause. Um, when we lived in California, my neighbors, when I was 10, were a Vietnamese family, a, a Vietnamese military officer and his kids. My parents were godparents to their daughter, their new daughter. And so for about a year and a half, our, uh, we lived in a duplex and, and my goodness, they, we babysat their kids. They, you know, we, they babysat us. They uh, uh, fed us. Uh, I got to know them really well. So that by the time uh, the service uh, came up, the notion of going to Vietnam, I believe that's who we were going to help. And they were good people. And I, I saw no reason why not to help these you know, wonderful Vietnamese people. And then when you get to Vietnam, I mean, if you're 11 Bravo infantry, you're in places where there aren't any Vietnamese people. You're not in the jungle. It's like someone says, well, did you enjoy Saigon? I said, never got there, you know, never saw a town. I think I went into one small village uh, to buy a, 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 a ranger beret that didn't quite fit. And I looked like the poppin' fresh doughboy. You know, some of the guys <laughs> in there they had these great, great berets and they, you know, they really looked the part. I, I look like the, you know, like that uh, Michelin, you know, tire guy, you know, cartoon plumped up white guy with a beret. So, um, <laughs> well, then, if, you went, if you went to join the Marines, how did you end up 11 Bravo Army? Uh, the, the Marine recruiter was out of there. He, was, he wasn't there. Uh, back in downtown Seattle at the time, they had a combined Army, Navy, Marine, and no Coast Guard, just Army, Navy, Marine Center. And uh, so I went down there. Navy guy was there. I, I didn't want anything to do with boats. My dad was Coast Guard. You know, I, I threw up a lot. Um, and uh, so I went over to look at the Marines, and he was gone. And then there was the Army recruiter there picking his teeth with a toothpick. You know, going, hey, kid, you know, what do you want? We can give you anything. And um, uh, yeah, 
So I thought, well, this is a good idea. This is as good as any. Uh, I originally signed up. I was in Army Intelligence uh, first. Um, I did really well in basic, basic training, and I really liked the infantry aspect. When I got to AIT, which was uh, Fort Hollerberg, which was image interpreting, which meant I you look at a lot of photographs underneath, uh, you know, microscopes or and whatnot, and, and I, I was just bored. I just thought I can't do this. Um, so I volunteered for infantry. The platoon sergeant I thought was crying. Uh, he, he sent me to the platoon leader, and I said, "Yeah, I want to volunteer for infantry." And, I, and then I thought he was going to cry. They took me to the command sergeant major at Fort Hollerberg, and and and, I, and they tried to talk me out of it. And they said, "Okay, if this is what you really want to do." And I said, "Yes, because I'm 18." You know, popping zip pimples. And then he goes, well, where, what place would you like to go to? I said, Fort Polk. Then I thought they were all going to cry. So I went down to Tigerland, and I, I did really well in, in AIT. I loved uh, v Louisiana. Fort Polk was more like Vietnam than Vietnam it was at times. Uh, there was mosquitoes, there was snakes, and there was lousy living conditions. But... There you go. And then we took you back there. So. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I just spoke to with Daryl last night and had a good conversation with him. And uh, those guys do a tremendous job down there. But yeah, I've never seen something more Vietnam-like than. Uh, uh, and you, you guys have to admit, you went there. You know, when, oh, yeah. you, when you're out in the woods there, and you 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 you're in a rattlesnake refuge. <laughs> How did you feel knowing that? I mean, there was there was tons of snakes out there. I'm really glad I only I ever saw that. two. <laughs> Yeah, that's the ones you see that you, you don't worry about. It's the ones you don't yeah. see you worry about. Yeah. Well, I was always on the lookout for not walking through a giant spider web. That would have gotten me more. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah it's, it, it was an interesting thing. So when I got to Vietnam, Dustin, to, uh, uh, I arrived at the first cab, and then these guys came out with, my goodness, uh, ranger scrolls on their jungle fatigues, black berets just looking perfectly spit polished boots and they're asking for volunteers there's about 30 of us that went there and uh, um, at the replacement station they said well how many how many days you got and they said well four or five days you know five or six days we said oh well that sounds good you know I, that's better than going out for a couple of weeks and then he said well how many people do you go out with he goes five or six and then half the people left and uh, <laughs> they didn't they didn't want to do that but um i that's where i got to know ed beal and a couple other people uh, Ed was in the same thing, and, and uh, so I got to meet him. They flew us up to Fook Van, um, took us over to the Ranger Company, put us in a, a training tent, which was horrible. This platoon-sized tent. You're living on a cot. Uh, you have, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, not not even two by fours. So you you have rats running through the things. A couple bare bulbs and sandbag wall around it. And then people yelling at you. I mean, the cadre there, really good people, really good training. I have to, uh, they only had us there for two and a half, almost three weeks. And they put us through some amazing training, more best training I think I've ever had anywhere in a, in a short period of time. So you, you got up in the morning, sometimes they'd wake you up by throwing a CS gas <laughs> container in, into the tent sometimes. Um, and if it wasn't the cadre, it was somebody else in the company, you know, for humor. You crawl out, you do your physical fitness pre-dawn, you'd run the perimeter road. Sometimes, first time I ever saw incoming, we were, they gave us a 30 pound rucksack. We had to do a five mile run. 
So we're doing the five mile run around the, the perimeter road in Fook Vin, and it gets hit with incoming. So a couple of the, the veterans with us, they're down on the ground. I'm up looking like it's 4th of July going, oh, cool. And then it was like, get down, you idiot. You know, that's shrapnel because you hear shrapnel come screaming by. Um, so you go back to your unit, you shower, you shave, you go get breakfast, you come back and then you begin your training. Uh, everything was pre-done for, for the physical fitness. And then, uh, uh, I mean, you were trained in medical procedures, uh, calling in artillery, enemy weapons, how to use them, how to deploy claymores, um, McGuire jungle rig, how to get pulled out of the jungle from a hundred foot rope, well, eight foot section of rope is, is wrapped around your chest. You got uh, lerp tactics, you got uh, learned how to, to do uh, the Australian peel, you learned how to, how, how to patrol and how do you, you know, uh, almost everything that you would need for the jungle specifically to that area, to Vietnam at that time, which, uh, you know, the guys, we had some guys that went through infantry training at, uh, you know, Fort, Fort Dix, New Jersey in the winter in snow. So wow. same thing with Fort Lewis. So they came over, you know, their infantry training was in the snow. So when they got to Vietnam, suddenly it's hundred plus degrees and miserable. Um, whereas at Fort, as I said, with Fort Polk, it was a hundred degrees and miserable anyway. So there wasn't much of a transition, you know, by the time you got there or from Fort Benning. But uh, in the Lurk Company, then if you graduated, if you made it through the training, usually there was about seven of us that I think graduated. And um, um, you, you had a nice little ceremony that came up there. And got, I think we, we got our raise from uh, the division commander, General E.B. Roberts. I think he showed up for that. You know, and they, you know, shake your hands, give you a beret, and you know, I'm a ranger. And uh, uh, you, you're stuck in the barracks, and then you're assigned to your teams. And and then first night in the in the jungle is probably the most frightening. And the second night, you're too tired to be frightened. But uh, yeah, that's. Uh, what's your next question? <laughs> uh, looks like Dave froze up. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm looking at it. I'm looking at him going, <laughs> he's not moving. Why is he not moving? He's, not, he's stuck. <laughs> uh, what, uh, what, you know, uh, I know that tomorrow's a big deal for you. How, how, um, how I'm has back. it, you back, Dave? That, that's why we do this on cloud recording, not my computer anymore. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, I know tomorrow's a big day for you. Uh, do you want to do you want to talk about it a little bit, or do you want to not talk about it? No, I'll, I'll talk about it tomorrow. I'd like the people to know the cost of of combat and to recognize these names. Um, I was on a team, Ranger team, that got hit. Uh, we were in Song Bay Province, November seventeenth, nineteen sixty-nine. Five of a five-man team, a really thick, dense jungle, and uh, forty about forty to forty-five North Vietnamese came by us and stopped. We were in a hide position. And one of them, I believe, was coming in to uh, go to the restroom, uh, bathroom, and let the fire department go by here. Um, and he stopped and he started walking in on us. And, and uh, one of our, our assistant team leaders, uh, Dave Torres, really good guy, was shot in the chest. He shot the uh, NBA soldiers coming in at us. And we're talking maybe 10 yards away uh, then they opened up. Um, my good, my really good friend Julius Zaporozak was killed. Um, 
he was fighting, then he got shot. Um, Dave Torres was shot again. Rogers was our, um, shot through both thighs and both legs, badly, badly damaged. That left the team leader, Jim McIntyre, who was a very brave guy. Uh, that's why when I hear someone says, oh, hero, that's the people I think of. I think of those guys. Um, Jim literally was up on one knee firing at dozens of people and, you know, yelling us for, uh, behind us to fire. He didn't know that the other guys had got shot. You know, he couldn't see behind him because he was too busy firing. So he was screaming for us to open fire. So I started open fire. You're trying to help the wounded guy. You're trying to fire and you have this horrible, it, it's the thing that bothers me the most. I wish I could have taken the time to help the wounded guy more uh, as opposed to, you know, to firing, but we were in a really bad situation. He told me to do a 180 behind me. So I started shooting uh, 180. Uh, I was grabbing every weapon we had, every weapon we could find, same thing with him. And then the, we had a, a M14, which sounds like a machine gun. Um, uh, there was an E1 and E2 model and the automatic one uh, fires 7.62 rounds and it sounds like machine gun. So I, I think the thing that saved us initially was the fact maybe the Vietnamese thought we were a platoon and they moved off and they, um, it was a horrible experience. We, we were told to, uh, they couldn't get a quick reaction force into us. There wasn't one available. So we were told to leave our dead and to move to a um, uh, pickup zone, uh, which we wouldn't do. And God bless my team leader, Jim McIntyre. Uh, there's just no way we were gonna leave our dead guys behind. And then a uh, rescue force from hotel company of Rangers. And I have to, I really have to emphasize this. Back at the Ranger company at Troop Venn, Mike Brennan, Lieutenant Mike Brennan, West Point graduate and a really good guy, Carlos, Charlie, uh, Chola, um, uh, Ernest Bolsarge, they, they all got together and they put together a rescue force to come out from Fukvin to us. So they're the ones that came out. But by that time, we had a uh, helicopter come in that dropped a basket down and we, we loaded our engine guy in first. We loaded our, our two dead guys uh, after that, the dying guys. And then um, Jim had me go up and then Jim came up. And it, it's probably the most miserable experience in my life. It's one of those things, if you have survivor's guilt, you have survivor's guilt from some of that. And, um, um, but all of those guys have passed away. Jim McIntyre, he died, uh, I think of an aneurysm uh, in his forties. Uh, you had uh, Rogers had passed away and the other two guys have died. So I, I feel like we have an obligation to tell those guys, you know, tell about those guys to tell something about their story and I mean, we're talking guys who are 20, 21, 22 years of age who are doing a, a really a, a dangerous job to help the division to get intelligence and had died in the process. You know, Hollywood movies always show them as being older people, but they're not. They're young kids. And uh, I was 19 at the time. And uh, uh, I realized how lucky I was to have served with some good people. So, yeah, it's, it's something I always uh, look at 17 November. And I always will give a nod to those guys every time. And I'll, I'll talk about their bravery every chance I get. And from that, they, there was a concern for you being a 19 year old to, you know, previously they taught you that you were, you know, the invincible American soldier. And then you see your team get wiped out and they, they were a bit worried about your combat effectiveness and they offered you 
um, a unique way to finish your tour, did they not? <clears throat> We're talking about the Jeep driver thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The uh, the uh, first of the ninth commander, the first of the, of the ninth uh, colonel, was actually in charge of the Lurps. He was in charge of the scalp dogs as well. And they had offered me a job as his Jeep driver, which would have been a really nice, comfortable job. And I turned it down. I volunteered for Apache troop um, up in Tainan. I had pulled some missions up in, in Tainan. And there was a bunch of former Rangers up there saying, hey, you got to come up here. We got more machine guns. We got, you know, we've got scout helicopters. We've got gunships. And uh, so I volunteered for that. The reason I volunteered for that, which I, you know, which you know, which I will admit right now, I couldn't drive a stick. So I couldn't drive the Jeep. And I, I was too embarrassed to admit that I couldn't drive the Jeep. So um, uh, I told him, no, I'll, I'll go to Apache Troop. So had I learned how to lose, use a clutch, I probably wouldn't have got shot. Yeah, but no one's going to buy the books about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, but going to Apache Troop was a good thing, too. It, uh, I, I saw, you know, they were a recon platoon. The Blues were a recon and air crew rescue. And there was no better feeling than going in and pulling out uh, recovering the guys who had been shot down, uh, the pilots and crew members, and no worse feeling than having to load their bodies in the body bags and, and carry them out. But we did that, and it turned out to be almost a weekly thing, and sometimes twice a week. Um, we would be uh, pulling recon missions in a bunker area, then we'd get a call to go back because a helicopter had got shot down in our area. So we would go back in to do that. But um, now to be, to, to maybe fill the audience in on it, Apache uh, Troop was a platoon of, uh, they, they call them red. Red was the artillery, your gunships. You had your Cobra gunship pilots. Um, you had the lift ship pilots, which are the UEs, and you had the scout birds, the small three-man loaches. And um, each, there was an each platoon for each one of those guys. And we were the blue infantry platoon. Blue is, is the designation in the military for infantry. So um, when we went out, we were very fortunate to have the scouts who flew above the trees and their helicopter noise would, would keep our noise down low. So we could sneak into places, which we did. We snuck into enemy bunk, occupied enemy bunker complexes and soon found that out. But um, um, sometimes to your benefit, sometimes, sometimes to your benefit and sometimes like, holy crap, no, what, what, what did we just find? But yeah. Uh, um, we had a lieutenant that with us that could really go to calling in artillery. We had uh, Paul, uh, John, uh, see Paul Funk at the time, the, the troop commander who uh, just a great guy. And he would coordinate with a CNC bird. He would coordinate, you know, the, the helicopters, the gunships to pre uh, protect us. So we had a lot of good protection. So when you see that fight on March 19th, where we ran into a battalion and uh, we killed 39 of them and wound a lot more, um, that wasn't just us. That was also the gunships that really was were looking out for us. Same thing with the scouts, helicopters. But there's no more frightening thought than seeing guys charge at you with bayonets from you know ten feet away. <laughs> yeah, well, one you barely stopped one bayonet charge with the guy fell what a foot from you or? Yeah, he's he's a dead guy in that news article. We had a Japanese um, uh, AP photographer with us at the time. And um, uh, he was just over our shoulder taking pictures. You know, what, what you don't see is Ed Beal was right on the other side over there and he had a head wound already. And Ed looked like he was dying, but you know, the bullet grazed his head and covered with blood and he was still fighting, fighting really well. 
same thing with Tony Cortez and, and all those guys. I mean, it's, uh, it, it had, had those guys not been there, we would not, um, I believe with, with, we, if we didn't have those people, we wouldn't be here today because it, um, when you, you, when you look to your right and you see Dwayne Bloor, uh, taking out an enemy machine gun, uh, crew who are less than 10 yards away. And which we didn't even see, Ed and I are concentrating on the guys coming at us with bayonets. And uh, when you have Tony running up to help you because someone had fired off an RPG, um, it, it is, it's impressive uh, to know that you have those kinds of friends with you. And then knowing that uh, Jack Ugly, the platoon leader, was, was calling in gunships and, you know, to our encircled and surrounded platoon, you know, uh, even when we had an infantry unit, uh, company of QRF come in from Fire Support Base Illingsworth. Um, there was almost 30 of those guys and we got surrounded again. So we had almost 50 to 60 people and we were surrounded. So that gives you an idea of what the enemy force was like. And then of course, um, one week later, I got shot in both legs in that same area. And then a week after that, which a lot of people don't know, is that Fire Support Base Illingsworth was overrun and uh, a Canadian, a guy who joined our service named Pete Lemon, got the Congressional Medal of Honor uh, in that fight. So that area, the dog said, was always a horrible area for us, a tough area. Well, the units that you saw those days were massing up probably for that. Yeah, well, you know, and then when, we, uh, when the, the incursion into Cambodia, just across the border was the Cosvin, was the Viet Cong headquarters. I mean, we're talking city, uh, we're talking... Uh, a jungle city that it was a base with thousands of NVA soldiers and Viet Cong. I mean, we, we, we pulled so much stuff out of their flags and guns and, and uh, uh, motorcycles, you know, banks, everything else. I, it, it was incredible. I've never seen anything like that. It was like you walked into the German staff headquarters and all their stuff is still there. It, it, uh, it, but it was underneath the jungle. So it was, it was a very interesting interesting time but uh yeah they, they and, and let's give the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese credit they fought well and they were persistent and they were they were going to keep fighting that war and it doesn't take anything away from the South Vietnamese soldiers because they were good as well uh, unfortunately the U.S. abandoned South Vietnam in, in the 70s and left them to uh, uh, you know le left them unfortunately to uh become both people and whatnot. It's, um, yeah. I, I think that's, that's one of the troubling things for me is they put a lot of faith in us and we, we kind of abandoned them. You, uh, you know, in the, in the CBS footage, they say that you got a one-way ticket home. How did you end up getting home actually? <laughs> I finished my tour of duty and uh, uh, got on the plane and, and uh, landed in Travis Air Force Base. They put you on a bus, they take you to Oakland and back then we only had jungle fatigues so we came home in, in jungle fatigues and they fitted us for a uh, cat or a dress uniform and that's the only time i think my ribbons were ever corrected in the right order is because they put together all that stuff um most of the time i wasn't you know i wasn't sure what what i had the um, um they they fed us they gave us a uniform. We didn't have any, most of us didn't have any civilian clothes. We were infantry. The guys, the guys who came back who had other jobs in Vietnam had civilian clothes. So we came back in jungle fatigue. So we got our dress uniforms, 
And then they told us, be careful when you, when, you know, we're going to put you on a bus. We're going to take you over to the airport. And right outside of the Oakland processing thing was a whole bunch of anti-war protesters. And boy, they were beaten on the side of the buses, calling his names, all kinds of other stuff. Got to San Francisco and uh, a young girl and her boyfriend were yelling at me because of uh, my uniform. And um, she was, you know, it's the first time I ever heard the term baby killer. It's like, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. what are you talking about? We were in the jungle. We never even saw a village, you know. Um, uh, I killed a lot of baby trees probably being a bad shot. Um, so I looked at her boyfriend. She was really swearing and up a storm. So I looked at him and I said, I'm going to punch you if you don't get her out of here. And so he took her away. Then I thought, okay, I need a drink. I was a sergeant. Uh, I walked into the bar. Now, you have to remember, in Vietnam, I could go to the NCO club and they'd give me a beer. I didn't drink much, but I would drink a beer. I went into the bar in San Francisco at the airport, and the guy wanted to see my ID. Well, I wasn't 21, so they kicked me out of the bar. I couldn't drink a beer, um, but okay. So I got on a plane, flew back to Seattle, found out my father was in the hospital. He'd fallen off a ladder painting the house and uh, was in the hospital with a broken jaw, broken ribs. My mom was a nurse at work. Uh, my sister was at school. Um, the puppy that they had when I left to Vietnam was a grown dog who didn't know who I was. The door was locked, so I crawled in through the kitchen window with the pup, with the dog chewing on my pat leg, my uniform pat leg. And I thought, well, okay, welcome home. <laughs> but uh, it was good to be home. It was, you know, it's, um, it, it was interesting. Some of my, my friends, Bobby Daly and group, you know, really welcomed me home. Other people didn't, you know, it's like, oh, we didn't even know you were in Vietnam. Uh, a couple other people thought, oh, you got shot. We thought you died. <laughs> and so, well, I, I said, no, I just smell that way. So, <laughs> so yeah, you can you can take a bullet for your country. They can shower you with ribbons, but don't drink a beer. <laughs> yeah, I can't have a beer, you know, because it's, uh, and that's all. It, I just wanted to sit back and just be by myself and just have a drink. And um, that's what a lot of veterans tend to do. You, you tend to take a few moments to contemplate whatever, and, or just to appreciate the fact that, you know, there's chairs, you know, there's music in the background. There's a waitress who might smile at you, you know. Well, and you kind of had a taste about what you're going to run into with your fan mail uh, after yeah. the, the CBS footage brought you some notoriety, shall we say? That that was real bizarre. I didn't ex- when I got back to my unit. There was a bunch of letters waiting, and uh, uh, company clerk Swanky brought him in to me, and he says, "Hey, you got fan mail," and I had never seen the film, you know, so I had really had no idea what it was. And there's a, a couple of them that you know. First one I opened is uh, again, it's the first couple, and it was people who were protesting the war. You could tell that they didn't know me because. My the unusual name they spelled my name, you know, the, my courtesy of my grandmother, by the way. I got to have that Norwegian ethnic thing, but um, you know, it was spelled incorrectly, so I didn't know these people. And one of them just says, "The war is wrong. Uh, you're wrong. I hope you lose your legs." And um, yeah, I, I burned them. I took the rest. I didn't even want to open them. I took them out to the burn barrel, and uh, I think they were burning shit at the time, so I just tossed those into the burn barrel. And um, I didn't care. Like I said, I was happy to be alive. I was happy to be back with my buddies. Uh, the war wasn't over for us yet. And, um, uh, but 
yeah, that gave me a, an introduction to that there's people who don't like the war and that will transfer their anger on veterans and whatnot. Veterans, you know, I mean, most of us, uh, we don't dictate policy. At, at best, we're serving our, we believe we're going over there serving our country and trying to do the best we can. Now, uh, I serve with a bunch of good draftees. So when people say, oh, we don't like draftees, well, there's a lot of good people who are incredible, incredibly good uh, service uh, soldiers and, and airmen and, and Marines and whatnot who were drafted. They served well, they served honorably. Everything wasn't like the movie Platoon or Apocalypse Now. Um, you see those movies and then people think they have an, an idea of what Vietnam was like. It's like, well, no. Talk to, talk to your uncles, talk to your father, talk to other veterans and, and you'll get a, it's a big giant puzzle. It's a jigsaw puzzle. And, and the more veterans and people you talk to, the more pieces that come into play. And, and it's also generational because a lot of service people now will tell you the same things. Yeah, our, our equipment didn't work like it's supposed to. Our, uh, the, the, we, the conditions we lived in sucked. The enemy was tough. So the whole combat thing becomes different pieces of puzzle that really links us all together. Yeah, and <clears throat> pardon me. So you, you, you finally got your beer in the empty house with the dog chewing on your pant leg. Um, what was it like that night to go to bed in your old bedroom, the one, you know, from high school before you were at war and now you've come back a different person? Did you, what, when did that reflection moment hit for you once you were home? Um, I had a 30 day leave before I was going back to Fort Dix, New Jersey. I'll be honest with you. I uh, stayed up probably all night and uh, pu probably pulled guard. You know, it's, it's a real weird thing. It, the, uh, how quiet things are at night is you, you tend, and I, and I know people still do this. My wife will probably tell you that I do. I still kind of walk guard at night here. I'll make sure the doors are locked, the windows are closed. Um, my kids say that I have a weapon behind every door. It's not true, I have two um, behind every door. But um, um, you still do that out of paranoia. And uh, maybe it's rightful, you know, <laughs> it's rightful to have that paranoia. But uh, uh, there are bad people in the world. The only thing law enforcement taught me is that you shouldn't lock your doors at night. There are some people out there that are pretty evil and they make you want to hammer nails into your door at night to make sure nobody gets in. Well, I've seen you shoot. You need two guns. <laughs> hey, you know, I won, I won some shooting trophies in my early days, but now I'm into my glasses. You won't see me put on my glasses for this show. So, oh, there you guys are. Um, but, uh, you know, nowadays for me to shoot a target, I'd have to say, wait a minute, let me get my glasses on. Oh, there's, there's sights at the end of the pistol. So, yeah, nowadays I use a shotgun. That's, that's a lot closer. Yeah. <laughs> Dustin. What uh? What was first for you when you when you when you so you you went on to, to serve in Europe uh, for a hot minute, but when when you came home from that, what uh? How long did it take you to go to work? Oh, I was like I, a work, job and do a thing. Well, I, I got a job. Uh, now I got the job as a uh, <laughs> most people most people think I re-enlisted for journalism in the army. I didn't. I got into trouble, and um, uh, I I had a. Uh, I might have said something very smart ass that I shouldn't have said to platoon sergeant and a first sergeant. So I was, I got in trouble and they sent me to the colonel, the, the battalion commander. And uh, he, he says, you know what? 
he gave me a nice talk about combat soldiers and then soldiers in the rear area that uh, uh, people who don't uh, uh, don't go to war. And uh, I didn't realize there was a animosity. There was a lot of animosity towards Vietnam vets at the time, and rightfully so because we probably didn't give a damn. You know, we we probably didn't look the best. We probably we probably smirked a little bit when you know non-combat soldiers told us how to do stuff for combat. So you know, and I was kind of a jerk. So I went in the colonel. The colonel says, "Hey, you know what? I'm going to give you a chance. I need a journalist. I know that you like writing." He'd found out that I was doing some writing, and so he gave me a chance to be a journalist. So I got to be a journalist for three and a half years, and I won a couple army awards. And I realized I like this. Paper cuts don't hurt as much as bullets. You know. <laughs> I've had so, some pretty bad paper cuts. Yeah. <laughs> so, so right that, on that year, dear. And then I wanted to go to college. I was, I was going to night school at, uh, it was in the army in Germany and I wanted to uh, finish college. So I, I got out and I, I got a job as a, a script writer for a production company. And I thought, well, this is cool. This is kind of nice. And then um, uh, you realize there's no benefits. Writing is, you know, people always say, oh, you write books. I say, yeah, you want to make money? Be an electrician, be a plumber. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's a hobby. Writing to me has always been a hobby. Uh, when I was in college, you, you know, you, you weren't considered to be, um, if you're taking creative writing, you weren't considered to be a writer unless you had poems or short stories published in literary magazines. So I did that and realized, well, nobody pays. <laughs> I was like, well, okay. Um, then I started writing from, because I was into martial arts, I started writing for martial arts publications. And, and I did that for about 15 to 20 years. And, and that gave me the, the ability just to keep writing. And again, writing, there's no... I only know, I know a bunch of writers. And I only know maybe two to three that are actually can make a living at it. And the rest of us, that's, you know, you, you go get other jobs and it's used to support whatever hobbies you have or habits you have. Um, but I like writing. My father was a journalist in the Coast Guard. And uh, that's probably where I got that from. And looking at it, <laughs> You know, we talked to, to Louis Sanchez last week and I love Louis. <laughs> Sampler fire, Hermano. Yeah. Um, he talked about the, you know, his experience with the cab driver. We've got to look out for each other. And yeah. that was very specific at that time to Vietnam veterans looking out for each other. But we've talked over the year just about all veterans, especially with more states deciding, hey, the first lockdown didn't work. Maybe it will be better the second time. Um, and, and, you know, we've talked on this podcast before about the need to keep checking in with veterans under, under these lockdown orders. Um, but going along that, like, what's your experience or, or how, how do you interact with other veterans or, or, or just talking? Like, what, what's been your experience like that? A lot of social media. Social media allows us to stay in touch, to um, we'll call each other. Um, you know, it's... It, it, a lot of the people from Apache Troop and same thing from the Rangers are, we're still, we're still um, talking to each other, either whether it's through social media or for phone calls. Social media allows you to really get your thoughts down better as opposed to like speaking right now. It's like, yeah, probably not as eloquent as I am in writing. You know, I have time to edit the hell out of whatever I'm writing. Uh, but uh, social media allows us an opportunity to, uh, to stay in touch. And it's a good thing. I've learned so much more. Uh, about, you know, things I thought I knew about Vietnam, which I didn't know. Uh, you know, Lieutenant Brennan, Charlie, 
Charlie Cho was telling me about Mike Brennan and Ernest Bosarge putting together the rescue group for our, I thought we were, for our, our ranger team that got hit, I thought we were left out in the wind. It turns out we weren't, that those guys were, were actually doing something. And to, um, years later to learn this just gives you, again, more respect and appreciation for those guys. So yeah, it, it's, it's important. And the older you get, the more you realize how lucky you were at times and how, um, you know, that you, you maybe aren't as wonderful as you think you are. And that if it wasn't for other good people around you, that uh, you might not be here <laughs> and uh, have some opportunities that you might not otherwise have. When we were interviewing Charlie that first time in 2016 at his house, and he told us that he hopped on the helicopter to come after you guys, is that the first time you knew that? Is that the first time you'd heard that? Yeah, that was that was the first time I'd heard that, and um, I was kind of tearing up a little bit because it, I'll be honest with you, I thought we were I thought we were abandoned, I thought we were left out in the wind. Um, when when you get a phone call, when you get the radio call saying leave your dead guys behind, so you you don't do that, you know. You, in combat, they always say you know you don't leave your dead behind. Well, that's not always the case. It's not always practical. You you wish and hope that's not the case. But when you have an opportunity to make a decision, and uh, when my team leader, Jim McIntyre, he looked at me and um, he said, we're not going, I not. I had a, immense respect for him at that very second. And when I heard Charlie say that, it, I had immense respect for Charlie, Mike Brennan, Ernest Bolsarge, uh, Greenlee, and all the other guys that came out on those helicopters flying out there in, in bad weather to uh, come out to our, where we were in the jungle to, to rescue us. And uh, there was only two of us left standing and uh, we were both slightly wounded. And it's, uh, it's that day is a, is a very tough day for me. And, and uh, so, yeah, I teared up a little bit here in Charlie. But again, it gives you that respect for the people and your buddies. And you realize that you have more friends who are willing to risk their lives to come out to get you. And, um, Charlie was like the first guy to give me my uh, uh, Black Hat Ranger scroll. I haven't, uh, I probably haven't worn a Black Hat Ranger scroll probably 20 years prior to that. And Charlie came out and gave me a, one of the, the uh, Ranger scrolls. And, and I still have that hat and I still cherish that hat. Because Charlie, Charlie was a great team leader. Charlie was, uh, Charlie should run for public office. First of all, he's that wonderful. He's that smart. He's that nice of a guy. And has really had, is. Great first lady, by the way. Um, but uh, Carlos Charlie Ochoa is probably one of the most decent people I know. And probably one of the best Rangers I know, too. All right, we'll start it right now. Carlos Charlie Ochoa for president. Yep, and Beverly for first lady. All right, and you'll be his VP? Okay. Oh, yeah, they don't want me anywhere near that press room or anything else. I'm too much of a smart ass. You know, it's, uh, I just want to see you try and climb into a cabinet. <laughs> no, thank you. I don't like I'm, I don't like politics. I steer away from politics. So, well, uh, so how did you end up in the fire department? I'm sorry. How did you end up being a firefighter? I was selling tr uh, truck parts for Kenworth. I worked for the Kenworth Truck Company. I was selling truck parts. Uh, that was in between while I was writing at night, trying to pretend I was a writer. And um, yeah. uh, then they had cutbacks. So the fire department had some openings. So, man, I, I went down and took the physical, uh, the, 
the fire exam, the fire, the written fire exam is easy. The physical part where, you know, you're running and jumping and screaming, carrying hoses and pulling off ladders, everything is timed. Um, I, I really love that aspect of it. And um, I, I enjoy being a firefighter. I, I got a chance to do CPR and people keep, uh, kept a couple people alive. We put out fires, probably more car accidents than anything else. Uh, mm -hmm. Help deliver a baby. It scared the hell out of me. By the way, women wow. are very strong. We're not. They're very strong. Um, but uh, then I got a knee operation out of that, and I was out of a job. Uh, customs didn't have a uh, too much of a physical back then, so that's how I got into customs. And uh, uh, but yeah, it's I've had six leg operations uh, since, or six leg operations in total because of getting shot. So. Yeah. Uh, it's it's been an interesting process so yeah i'm not running any marathons these days <laughs> uh do you have any more on the docket for your legs the or what i mean what what is the i mean it's not like you got shot you got sewed up and you've never had any problems since oh, no, I, I, the after effects of getting shot uh the 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 left leg the uh hamstring was uh cut in half so they they sewed that together with piano wire. I mean, I got some metal wire in there and I don't have any much in the way of flexibility. But when I was doing Kung Fu, you know, uh, my Sifu, Alan Chin at the time, he was going, well, I want you to do higher butterfly kicks. I'm like, I can't, you know, so I, I'm really good at low kicks. I can kick you, you know, pretty low. I can take out your legs, but uh, I, I just didn't have the flexibility. I started doing uh, recently, probably in the last year or so, started doing some yoga. So the flexibility is more there. I've had, too many knee operations where, uh, and they tell you this, they had a hip replacement. Um, hip, re hip was right leg from where I got shot, went bad. So it, he just, he, it, everything's going to happen to somebody anyway. So just get used to this. You guys are young. Just get, just get to know that you're going to get to know your doctors a lot better in the future. But uh, the damage that you cause when you're young will catch up to you. Yeah, that's the pep talk you gave me after I tore up my shoulder in PT at Customs and couldn't really move it. And you said, oh, don't worry, you'll feel it even more when you're older. I'm like, thanks for the pep talk, Craig. Well, but it's the other aspect of it. It's that when we rely too much on our physical aspects uh, for whatever we're doing and we forget that there's other things we could be doing. I, I, yeah. This gave me more time to write, you know, lockdown. I just finished the, the draft of the draft number eight, by the way, of the second book. And, and um, uh, I have plenty of time to write. So it's like, okay, when one door closes, you know, hopefully another door will open. You may not like what's inside, but you can close that damn door too and find another one. Now I'm the eternal optimist. I'm still digging underneath that pile of horse crap, looking for that unicorn, you know? Yeah, what man. You, what do you mean eighth, eighth draft? Everything's always a rough draft till your final draft. <laughs> right. <laughs> This is my rough draft. You know, the, the, the funniest thing, and you guys know this because you're scriptwriters. You know damn well, even when you finish it, you're going, I could have done better. I could have done better. Uh, every, everything I've ever written, I look at it, it's like, oh my God, I could have done better. You know, and, uh, well, and then you hand it off to somebody else and they're like, they're going to do whatever they do with it. And they already paid you. So you're just like, okay, well, bye. Yeah, exactly. So you kind of go, yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, writing is therapy for me. I, I, I find it as good therapy. I can sit there and, and make some sense of things. Uh, once I finish the third book in the Vietnam series, I, I'm done. I'll be done with Vietnam forever. And, you know, uh, 
like was, you said, haven't said that before. Well, yeah, but you know, people. My wife had pointed out the fact that uh, you know you you write books about 1886 about the military campaign. You write books about the Civil War, and you know you see a theme going here. It's like yeah, they're all combat related. So I'm I'm moving away from that. I'm going to write a comedy, just nothing but straight comedy. And I want to get people laughing. My goal now is to get people feeling good about life and enjoying life. All right. Awesome. Give me my autographed copy and we're good to go. <laughs> the other fact is I don't own the rights to any of the Vietnam books, the first five. They're, they're owned by Random House. So I don't have any, right. any control over those. Uh, the reason why I'm doing my own Vietnam books now is that so I can actually, you know, have uh, owned some of the rights. It's like musicians, I guess. You know, the Beatles, when they did Apple, uh, it's because they wanted to do their music. Beach Boys, everybody else did the same thing. Well, yeah. You know, uh, go ahead, Dave. When you autographed Stalking the Dragon for me, you wrote, Dave, make this a movie. So I have inferred that I own the film rights to that novel. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll talk because you, you, you still haven't paid me 25 cents that you promised me for that. You know, the... Um, that is, I wrote that because that's a humorous book. That is a funny story. I, I was actually enjoying writing that one. Um, it was, that's, that's my baby that just makes me laugh. Everything in there, you know, what could possibly go wrong with the military, you know, uh, operation goes wrong uh, in hilarious ways. And um, um, yeah, I wanted to have a comedy out there that people could read and going, oh, this is absurd. But it is, it's an absurd comedy, but uh, it won the 2010 Best Humor Award. So I, I really appreciated that aspect. So yeah, make it a movie. Let's- uh, All right, all right, we will. <laughs> uh, we owe you a quarter. <laughs> 25 cents cash. Yeah. All right, I got, I actually have the piggy bank right here. <laughs> nice. Of course, I'll, I'll be long dead by the time that ever comes out. So that's the other part, you know. We we, we know about Hollywood and movies now. We put it up on the internet that this was our film fund and there we go. There's your quarter. <laughs> well, you guys are doing a good job with it. I hope you get a chance to talk to more veterans and uh, tell their stories. And and to, it, it really is a nice catharsis to us in many ways. It's a nice way of unburdening. Um, people always say, well, veterans don't talk you know, about their experience. Yeah, they do. They talked about other veterans all the time. When you go to a, a military reunion, those guys are, are right back in at their 19, 20, 21 again. And they're telling you different parts of the stories that you thought you knew. You're laughing at the same ridiculous stuff. You're crying at the other stuff, the misery. But the veterans do talk, but it, it, they don't talk with people who may not understand. That's the other part. Um, and with, if, a lot of Vietnam veterans didn't talk because there was a lot of um, uh, animosity towards us at the time. So, I mean, the only reason I started writing the books probably was because of therapy. <laughs> that was my that was my therapy to put things down in words. So, Destiny just handed us the lead in about talking. I'm gonna let you run with it because I got a different question to ask in a second. Oh my God, uh, Craig, if there if there um. You're, I mean, you are thinking about something totally else, Dave. So get ready to be disappointed by me once again. Uh, Craig, oh. if you, if you, uh, it's I know it's a constant embarrassment. Uh, I'd be disappointed if you didn't disappoint me. <laughs> well, I'm disappointed in both of you guys thinking that I have any wisdom to share. <laughs> 
Well, I think you do, Craig. I think, um, you know, you've, you've done all the, I don't know, man, I know, you, I know you don't like to talk about it, but you've, you've, uh, you've done all the cool things to be an American. You've had kids, you've, you know, made your own way in the writing world. You've, you know, served your country. There's, there's a piece of, um, you know, there's, there's chunks of struggle with every, with every life. Uh, if you had some wisdom to put into a young returning serviceman who's just, you know, listening to our podcast for the first time, um, you know, what's your, what's your view on it the last 50 years since you got home? What's the, you know, what, what, what tools would you hand off? I guess is my real question. What tools have you developed that you'd like to pass on? What would you tell the 19 year old you returning home from war? Don't, don't sit alone in the basement in your bedroom by yourself and uh, get out there and talk to people. Get out there. If you need counseling, go ahead, go ahead and see a counselor. Go ahead and find out if you're a little bit, you know, I'm finding out I'm crazy, but all for the wrong reasons, you know, but um, um, go get an education, go to school, you know, talk to people. What is it that you really want to do? And what goal do you think you have? Because those goals will change every five years, but uh, have a target and, and work towards it. And don't listen to critics. I mean, I had a whole bunch of people telling me, you'll never get anything published. Ah, you'll never write. You'll never sell anything. And um, the, the hardest experience I thought writing is when I got my first short story accepted. I was like, holy crap, now I have to edit, you know? <laughs> and, and, but people never tell you that part, you know? Um, uh, getting accepted, it, you believe, you know, when I sold my first book, I was ready to quit customs and I was ready to... Um, you know, go on, talk to Oprah and be on all the talk shows and trying to look thoughtful and, and uh, uh, flirty at the same time. And then you realize there's not enough money to retire. Uh, I got a nice call from another writer who had sold his books. Gary Linder says, hey, let me tell you what's not going to happen. And when you find out how little money you're going to make from your book, you realize you can't feed yourself, that uh, you better treat that as hobby money. That you better have a job. You better, you know, you know, get something to pay your bills and and to eat and keep the power on. Um, but uh, but again, it you have a goal. You have. A, I wanted to be the writer, so I was going to write regardless. You know, it's like okay, if I don't get published, who cares? I'm going to keep writing. And then the other part is toughening yourself up for rejection. You know, uh, I tell every guy who's uh, wants to be a writer to think of it as dating. Yeah, you'll go out and you date some girls and you're going to get rejected. And welcome to the writing world. You're going to get rejected. Uh, this probably never happens to you guys in, in Hollywood with your script writing, but because everything's always, everyone's always excited to, to make a movie, correct? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I was speaking up at Seattle U uh, a year ago, and one of the students asked me if I had any regrets uh, in a career. And I was like, yes, I do. And she said, well, what are they? I have no idea because I forgot, you know, I, I'll think about him. And, you know, do people say no to us? Yes. Can I really Literally remember? Every day. I think every day we have a new opportunity to do something. And every day we have a new opportunity to achieve a goal if, if we just work at it. We can't say keep saying manana. We can't put something off till tomorrow. You know, just uh, take the time today because you get to be old soon enough. You get to be, you know. You look in the mirror and suddenly one day you see your grandfather or grandmother and you realize that uh, time goes by. So time is precious. So whatever time you're fortunate enough to have, 
make the most of it. You know, go out and achieve something. If it's sports, if you have a hobby that you enjoy doing, get out there and make the most of it. If you want to be a writer, a painter, a singer, uh, play a musical instrument, well, take take the moment right now to say, okay, uh, this is an E chord. This is an E string. Um, you know, uh, thanks to YouTube, you can really pump up the game real quick. Whatever it is that you have. Um, I took apart a washing machine dryer a couple weeks ago because uh, Thermeister, which I never knew existed before um, until I went on YouTube and I realized, okay, um, I can do this. But if it wasn't for YouTube, there's no, hey, shush. There's no way that I'd be able to, uh, uh, to do that. We got the dryer working. My wife is so proud of me that I fixed the dryer. So I said, okay, what else you got? What else is broken? But you know. No, um, revel in the moment. I was, I was going to say, anyone can take a dryer apart. Did you get it back together? <laughs> That's I, I, still have, I still have one screw left over, and I'm not sure where it goes, but the, the dryer is more quiet. By the way, I found all the chains that get stuck in a dryer. Oh, yeah? So I enriched my life with 37 cents by, by taking the dryer apart. So that fell out of the, you know, the, uh, the tumbler. But uh, it works. It works fine. And... For less than fifty dollars, we fix the dryer. Well, nice job, guy. <laughs> yeah, less than fifty plus thirty-seven cents back. I uh, would say you could supersize it, but I don't think you can supersize it for that anymore. Yeah, yeah. I pretty much felt like Baldrick. Did you ever watch Black Adder? Yeah. Yeah, it's like I have a cunning plan. So I think my wife was was probably suspicious when I had all the screws out and I had the whole thing had taken apart, but. Uh, <laughs> But I, I also have my computer open to YouTube and, you know, they, they have all the experts doing it and showing you how to, to do it and accomplish it. And, and it goes back to what I was saying about making the most of time. Whatever hobby you've got, whatever hobby you want to have, you want to learn a language, you can do that now. You can do that even during COVID. Duolingo, Babbel, um, you know, it gives you an opportunity to do that. But don't say manana. Don't put it off till tomorrow. Do it now. And uh, same thing with writing, you know, write that bestseller now and get, learn how to get rejected. Cause it's fun. Uh, <laughs> Super fun. <laughs> it's my favorite part of the job. Yeah. It's the, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing is that eventually doors open, uh, you know, to be at this age right now and to know that uh, uh, I've got people that like, that's the other part when people say, oh, I like your book. I'm really kind of shocked. It's like, Oh man, read better books. You know, it's uh, <laughs> but it's. I'm always surprised by that. That's why I don't put much stock and faith with this celebrity thing. It's uh, uh, it's it's it doesn't mean much to me. My friends, are, my old friends, are still my friends. They're still good people. I still have friends from high school that are the same people. My buddies from Vietnam, the same way. You guys, I've known you guys for years, and I and I'm really proud of the relationship. And I'm I'm really pleased that you guys are are seeing your dream through. Yeah, every time you agree to talk to us again, I'm super shocked. <laughs> well, learn not, I won't travel with you around the, the United States again. It's like, holy You know, God. you say that. You know, I had a wonderful time, but man, people don't realize how long and arduous that is. It's a real journey, man. You weren't yeah. even on the long trip. <laughs> well, the, the fun part is we got to see some good stuff. You know, it's, uh, if, if people haven't been to Deadwood, North Dakota, they get a chance to go to Deadwood. We did South. that. So yeah, a little bighorn, we did that, you know. So. Yeah, Deadwood and Mount Rushmore and oh, 
Well, I love history. So this gives me a really good chance to, to see some of these. And, and it was, but it's like, okay, but the eight hours in between, you know, you get to see every gas station there is and uh, find every snack food there is locally. So, uh, and every cornfield you pass by. You know? That's right. One of my favorite days on those trips is when you get beyond your normal snack area and suddenly you start seeing new regional snacks. And you're like, oh, man. Regional snacks is the best, man. I gotta, yeah. You know, yeah, we, had a whole, we got a whole game going on with that. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm reading a James Lee Burke novel um, and he talks about the, uh, the bridge over that act of flay of swamp, the bayou. And we took that route, guys. Yeah. We left Texas and went through there, that long bridge through the swamp. Yeah, it's a crazy bridge. We were there. <laughs> yeah, and we were driving above it. Like, it wasn't, it's not, can you imagine having to take that trek without the superstructure? Just, just crazy. They came over that in wagons, man. I, you know, it, for the life of me, you really got to appreciate uh, the folks who came before us. I think of my great uh, grand, my grandparents who came over Suquamish Pass in wagons, you know, back in the uh, yeah. early 1900s. And, and uh, you know, I, I think the Asians are correct about ancestor worship. We need to give thanks for all the relatives who went through all that crap to get us to this wonderful time now. And, and, and while it may not seem wonderful to some people, we have electricity, we got medicine, we've got, uh, you know, again, I'm an I'm, uh, I'm very much an optimist. So I think, you know, uh, we need to give some thanks for those who went before us. Yep. And amen to that. I'm going to double back. I have a, a two part thing I want to hit here. First, before the second part, I want to establish, I mean, we've already established the bona fides uh, that you were obviously in Vietnam because we've seen it on the internet, live <laughs> and in quasi 1960s color. Yeah, it's uh, kind of tinted. Yeah, it's sort of color. Yeah, washed out a little. Um, that being said, there are at least once a week some certain comments we were talking about before we hit record about people believing whether or not that is an uh, actually happened or is some grand CIA set up on a sound stage to to make the the U.S. look great what what do you have to say to I will use the word to the haters who think that didn't really happen well uh, you know what is that a uh, seven five seven minute film you know and, and those people were with us the entire day that took the entire day we got there in the morning uh, you just don't you know Hey, two minutes, we're into the battle site. Three minutes later, he's getting shot. Four minutes later, he's out. Uh, no, that's the entire day. Um, it didn't happen quite like, you know, it says the medic brings it back. Well, that was Dennis Henderson. Dennis Henderson was walking point at the time. Dennis, on the way, we had uh, a report from the Scott helicopters. They had a lot of activity in front of us. So he said, okay, move back. Let's get them the heck out of there. So uh, I think it was Paul Funk who decided to get us out of there. And uh, um, so Dennis asked me if I would take over Walking Point because he said he was missing some things. And I, I didn't have a problem with Ed Beal and I love to walk point. So we said, yeah, we can do that. So um, we start, we weren't walking on the same trail. People think you're walking on the same trail. No, we're paralleling a trail. There are trails everywhere. Um, when I went down on my knee, when I saw their footprint, if, if I didn't see that uh, North Vietnamese bootprint, I probably would have been dead. I think they were um, setting up an ambush for us. And if you talk to Ed Beal, Ed will say this. Ed had uh, talked to Lieutenant Ugly, 
that when we went in, we knew they were there. So he asked Jack Ugly, uh, our platoon leader, if he and if Ed and I could stay behind and we would ambush anybody coming in behind us because we knew they were going to do that. And Jack did want us to, to split us up, so he kept us together. So um, um, as our unit was heading back towards the LZ from a different angle, I saw a side trail and I saw a fresh boot print and it was like an oh crap moment. That's definitely one of those oh shit moments. Like, oh my God, somebody is just here. The guy screams in front of me and he was uh, 10 feet away. And uh, if he didn't scream, I probably wouldn't have looked up and saw him, he, you know, but he screamed. I think he was screaming to the other people behind him. He shot me in the right leg, I shot him. Uh, or we shot at the same time. Uh, he went down, uh, I went down, uh, they, they kept shooting. The guys behind me were firing uh, over me. <laughs> the door feeding me were firing back at them. I started to reach for another magazine because my was empty. I probably shot a lot of trees before I shot that guy uh, bringing the rifle up. I reached the magazine and they, they were firing again. So I thought, okay, screw this. And I thought, okay, I got to get to a tree. I got to crawl behind a tree because I need to get out of the open. Um, so I saw a tree, made no more, maybe six, 10 feet away, 12 feet away. And I thought, boy, if I can get to that tree, I, I know I'll be, I'll have some cover. Um, our Kit Carson scout, uh, Yen Wei, came out and ran in front of me, jumped in front of me and started firing and gave me a chance to crawl back to the tree. The, the CBS news clip never talks about that either. But this guy had, you know, giant balls, but he protected us and he was firing at them. Uh, that gave me a chance to crawl behind a tree. He comes running back. He says, you saved me on 19th of March. And I, what he was referring to as a 19th of March, we had a, a guy coming out of a bunker with an RPG and he was going to fire on Way. And I shot the guy, grabbed the RPG out of his head. And, but Way remembered that and he actually protected me. And had he not, I, I don't know what would have happened. But I got behind a tree. I, my front muscle was like a bad water balloon. I pushed that down. I, I kept popping out. I had a small bandage on my LBE which is your, your web gear. I pulled the bandage out. It was too small. Doc came back. Uh, he bandaged it. I pulled off my shirt. In the film, you'll see I wasn't wearing a shirt because I pulled off my shirt to use that as a bandage. I used the arms to tie around because the whole front muscle popped out and it bleeding. It was ugly mess. It was like, holy crap, what is this? Um, so I used my shirt as a bandage and over a bandage. Then Doc came over and uh, he put on a really good bandage. And I thought, oh, good, I'm, you know, the muscle's back in place, it's not bleeding now. Only there was, uh, I was, where I was sitting, the pool of blood just kept growing. So Doc looked at the back of my left leg and uh, saw an ugly uh, stain, ripped open the back of my pants, my left uh, thigh fell out, my hamstring fell out. And that's when I realized, that's when I started to get scared because I thought I'd only been shot once. And uh, Doc, Gives me a shot of morphine, did a really good job of bandaging. And then he says, oh, I'll carry you back. I go like, hell you will. I don't want to get shot again. Um, I said, you go. And he says, no, I'm the, I'm the medic. I said, you go, I'm the sergeant. And I send him back. And because I have morphine, morphine is a wonderful thing for pain. I thought, I can walk. I got up, took two steps, fell right on my face. Then as tender scan, did a face plant. It was like, well, apparently I can't. Uh, and then Dennis Henderson, I started to get up uh, again. Dennis Henderson scooped me up and brings me back. So if you look at the CBS film, 
it's a guy with glasses. Dennis has since passed away. And um, um, he's a guy that asked me if I would walk point, but he literally pulled me back. Um, and then it's just, a, again, this is, a, you know, half hour later that the, 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 the news guy is asking questions. And I'm sure he edited a lot of stuff because we were swearing a lot. You know, I, we're 19, 20, 21 year old soldiers. And we might have said a couple of things. We probably wasn't prime time you know, viewing. Um, so uh, uh, what the film doesn't show is I got stuck when, they, when the helicopter came in, it was getting shot at. And they dropped a drunk jungle penetrator down this little metal seat thing you, you sit on, hold on for your life. And I got stuck in a tree. And because you're in a jungle. So as I'm getting going up, I'm stuck on limbs and the guys below Doc and Jim Braun and, and Jack Ugadick are telling the pilot, you know, hey, he's stuck in a tree. And luckily the branches broke, but it, it ripped off. If you see the film, you'll see the, the bandage is dangling. And Doc did a great job of, uh, of bandaging me up. So I get in the, in the helicopter, they're pulling me in, the medics in there pulling me in. And uh, he says, oh, look, bullet holes. And I thought, oh, they're trying to shoot me. And it's like, no, you dumb, dumb ass. They're trying to shoot the helicopter down. And it's like, oh, oh yeah. But uh, then they flew me back to, to Tainan Hospital. The uh, medics, nurses, and doctors rushed out, took good care of me. And uh, they're cutting away everything, putting blood pressure cuffs on you, putting an IV in you. And I already had a shot of morphine. So uh, they're just cutting everything away and cleaning you up because we're kind of filled. People ask the other part is that you're, in a jungle all day, you're hot, sweaty, you're dirty. Now you're covered with blood and dirt. So um, your, your gunshot wounds are just filthy. <laughs> I mean, they were just filthy. So they're trying to pick out wood and leaves and all the other shit, that the stuff um, that was in there. Hey, so, hey, yeah. watch the language. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, again, it's I have great respect for medics. And the bravest person on the battlefield to me is a medic. They're going up there and they're going to help you, help the wounded every chance they get. Um, the medics, doctors, and nurses, nurses especially, because they're there 24-7. Doctors come by every few hours. Yeah, you're okay. Um, here, take a pill. Um, and the medics, they, they take good care of you. And again, when it comes back to heroes, there's some really good, brave people that don't get the recognition. You get a nickname, you're on a CBS film, and people will suddenly attribute more to you than you probably rightfully deserve. And, uh, but I, I have my heroes. I've got people like Jim McIntyre, Carlos uh, Choya, Lieutenant uh, Brennan, Jack Ugly, uh, Ernest Bosarge, um, um, John LeBron, Craig Learberg, so many people that, you know, Jim Seymour, Spanky Seymour, that, uh, that is Walter James Seymour. Uh, I have to say that because he, he did three tours of duty as a LERP, uh, you know, two and a half years as a LERP. And that, that, that is something. Ray Martinez out of Idaho, guy was 101st, Gary Linder. So many of these people that, that uh, deserve the recognition and they seldom got, and they are well-deserved and earned it. And um, so, yeah, I have, I've got my heroes. My heroes out there also extend to the new guys. You know, there's, there's people out there, Max Mullen, uh, a ranger, a ranger instructor who, who fought in other combat. Uh, my daughter, my oldest daughter, just retired from the Air Force and she did multiple tours in Afghanistan, um, Iraq and Syria. And she was an intelligence analyst and in, in for a special operations group. So she, she did a lot of, of stuff that, and she couldn't always tell me and she hasn't because her, apparently her clearance is higher than me. Uh, 
Probably, yeah. Yeah, no, she did. She she called me up and she said, Dad, guess what I did? I said, what? And she goes, oh, that's right. You don't have a top secret clearance. <laughs> Boom. Yeah, that's, that's okay, yeah. But I told her it was good that the Air Force had women because someone needed to make them in coffee. And then she started to swear and the swear words started way over here and ended over here. But uh, but yeah, I, I have my heroes as well. My heroes are, you know, I, you see them every day. You're, they'll be your firefighters, your nurses, school teachers. You've got a whole bunch of people that we just take for granted until there's a moment where they step up and, and show that they're just more than what you thought they were. Like script writers. Oh, yeah. Right. Nothing happens without us. <laughs> Well, this certainly would have happened without you guys. I mean, you guys, uh, Dave, uh, when we were down in the basement in that hidden location, guarding that hidden stuff uh, for the government, and you would, you know, start asking me questions about Vietnam, that allowed me to, to think about things. And that led to other books, by the way, you know, that uh, I would go home and think, wow, okay, um, man, that kind of opened up a can of worms. But it, it did, it allowed me to talk about things did it did it change your perception of what you thought of vietnam and vietnam vets yeah because you know we, we've talked about this when you look at you know one of the original premises of the movie which evolved since then but was why our why when we you know it's not even taught anymore at all to my daughters but for dust and i when we were taught vietnam you know, it's all very clinical overview of it and everything we see in pop cultures and reading the history books was about the protests. And, you know, you look at the trope of the Vietnam veteran in movies. Um, it was not, listening to the story sounded like the stories of everything else I'd ever heard from any other war or conflict, yet no one seemed to want to tell that for you guys. Um, even just the choices, the music that is put over Vietnam movies. Like you could take the music from Band of Brothers and put it over a Vietnam movie. Man, totally changes everything. Just even the small subliminal things. So yeah, listening to you tell your stories really kind of planted the seeds for us of why, why you know, every, these are all the same stories that we hear from other generations that get lauded on you know, in books and movies and everything else, yet somehow you guys did wrong by doing the exact same thing and being told to go to a country and and, and fight. And suddenly, apparently, it's your fault. Oh, like when I was in college, I had a, you know, a philosophy professor that was, you know, there was four of us veterans in the back. And, and uh, I was I was majoring in GI Bill at the time, you know, and and, uh, it, and he, he said, well, you know, people who go to war, uh, are criminals <laughs> and that it's better to go to prison than to go to war. And I said, well, you know, have you ever been in, in military? He goes, no. I said, well, you ever been in prison? And he said, no. And I said, well, you don't know what the F you're talking about. And apparently I got kicked out of class for that, but I went through an angry stage, you know, for a while I dropped out of college. I, I finally ended up, uh, my, my college degree looks like a patchwork quilt, but uh, I finally got my degree and, and, um, um, but you know, it, it was a hard experience. Everyone would always bring up Milai as though all of us went through villages. But you know, one of my heroes from the Vietnam War is Hugh Thompson, and Hugh Thompson and and, um, um, and his two man crew and his helicopter actually had machine guns on Cali's guys. They were rescuing people from Milai for ready to shoot the GIs who were who were massacring the people in the village. So you had a bunch of of good people in the military then as well. You had people with a conscience. 
you know, uh, a movie like Platoon, and they said, well, yeah, that stuff is based on all uh, things that have happened. Well, if you take nine and a half years of any war and you put all the bad things together in an hour and a half movie, it, no one's going to look good. But there was a, you know, there was evil done. Yeah, I, there's no doubt in my mind. Uh, you had a cross section of America that was over there. You had a whole bunch of allied countries that were over there. So I, you know, there, in, in combat, in war, horrible things happen. But you also have a bunch of good, decent people. I'd say the good, decent people are just doing their best to survive. They're trying to take care of their buddies. And they're not, you know, like I said, I, you know, I, I sometimes I don't feel like a Vietnam veteran because I never went through a rice paddy, you know, with a water buffalo in the distance, never went through a village, never had to search a village. All we had was in where we were was pretty much Tarzan jungle. And uh, you, uh, you ever see a fish farm? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the platoon will ever let Ed or I live that down. Um, yeah, we used too much explosive on the North Vietnamese fish pond that they uh, had in the jungle. And we covered the entire platoon and probably the entire jungle for miles and fish guts. Um, I know that the art doctor and a lot of the helicopter crews were angry at us because when the, when the platoon went back, they had to clean out their helicopters from fish guts. And uh, someone will always send that Bush Cassidy and, and uh, Sundance Kid thing where they used too much dynamite on the uh, uh, the real car that they're oh, the real car, yeah. yeah and it blows up so yeah it, ed and i we we were good at making bombs we were good at exploding stuff that uh you just didn't want to let us uh determine on our own how much explosive we needed <laughs> whenever you tell me that story i think of uh reno 911 when they blow up the whale on the <laughs> <laughs> it looked just like that and this stuff it landed it was you know it took, which would what is missing is the comments from the platoon from the guys. I think the look on Jim Brown's face of disgust, of total disgust at Ed and I was hilarious. And we probably kept laughing because we were covered in fish guts as well. And um, uh, even the Vietnamese, probably the North Vietnamese were over there laughing as well. Because I don't think all we did was blow up some of the fish. You know, and I doubt if we blew up the entire uh, pond that they had for as a food, as their, their local fish and chips place for the jungle. But um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. But, you know, during other times, we would have to do bomb damage assessments, and we would go into where the Air Force had dropped these 500,000-pound bombs, and there's nothing more frightening than coming across one of those bombs that hadn't detonated yet. And uh, we had one guy in the platoon that was kicking one. He goes, Sarge, I found something. And Ed and I move around to where this guy is, and, and Ed, I think, looked at him and said, I'm going to ban at you to a tree if you kick that thing again. It was a 500 pound bomb that didn't go off. So we ended up setting a charge on that thing. You know, the platoon was, was, was moving um, out of there. And Ed and I, I think we set a charge on that. And we ended up blowing that thing up. But they would leave big craters. I mean, there was uh, bomb, I hated bomb damagement assessments for the Air Force because there was nothing but huge craters you had to go around and get stepped through mud, bits and pieces of animals angry uh, snakes and fire ants and everything else and trees, birds walking in circles that are confused. So it was, uh, there was nothing left of an area where it had been bombed. Same thing with Agent Orange. We went through an Agent Orange area. It was unnerving because there was no signs of life at all. I mean, it was, everything was wow. destroyed. And I, I, I teased a while ago that I had a two part 
question here. Now we set up your bona fides. And yes, it is real that you were shot and it was filmed. Um, the, the stolen valor videos have become a big thing on the internet and I am not knocking going after people who steal valor, not knocking that at all. Uh, they should be brought forward. I just want to caution because you've been accused of stolen valor a couple times. Oh, yeah. Haven't you? Um, yeah, it's, uh, I think until people check it out, you know, then they, then they come back and realize, oh, okay, no, you, you did get shot. Yeah, you do have those awards. Yeah, you did serve as a LERP. Yeah, you were a point man. Um, um, but Valor, Valor to me is, is, uh, is kind of a hit and miss thing. It's an on and off button that I think we all have. You know, we may not be, we'll rise to occasion um, at one time. We may not rise to it at another. You know, after I got shot, I was really leery. I didn't want to get shot again. The hardest thing I think for me was volunteering to go on the rescue mission for the Ranger team in Cambodia, because I, I didn't want to get shot again, because it, I realized, man, suddenly I realized there's a different side of this that it could it could all go badly very quickly. So um, when it comes to valor, I don't like to see stolen valor either. I don't like people trying to make themselves out to be something more than they were. Uh, we were all, uh, kids trying to, you know, young soldiers trying to do the best we could, men and women trying to do the best we could. There are people who did extraordinary valorous things, and you should always applaud them. Uh, we have those every day in real life. Someone who rushes out and saves somebody from getting hit by a car and then gets injured themselves. That's exceptional valor. Uh, people shouldn't steal that. You know, when it comes to military valor, a lot of people will say, oh yeah, we were Vietnam combat. It's like, well, maybe you weren't, maybe you were in a, a different position, but it doesn't matter what your job was over there. You should just be proud of whatever job you did. And if you did it well, you did it honorably, that matters too. But uh, in valor, no, I don't think, I think we're all capable of valor, whether we do it 100% of the time, I don't think so. I think that uh, there's time to be cautious as well. And, uh, and other people will step up the plate so when I see stolen valor, people trying to steal somebody else's ranger scroll, saying, yeah, they were part of that. Uh, I actually had a, a guy once at a party tell me uh, that, that he was part of the, the CBS uh, platoon. Nice. <laughs> and, and, and I was kind of chuckling. And I said, well, do you know that guy? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, oh, he's a real, he's a real jerk, you know. And the guy goes, what? I said, because that was me, and I don't remember you in the platoon. And he suddenly gets real quiet. But um, there are people out there, but how many people, you know, like to buffer up themselves? And um, it, it's okay. I, I think as writers, as someone who writes about other people, and I will always put those people higher than, than me because I've got a lot of respect for those guys. And uh, whether I did a good job writing about them, I don't know. Um, I, I always believe I could have done better. And um, uh, as far as, as I go, uh, my awards, I don't, my awards are down in the basement. I don't, you know, have them out anywhere because uh, when I see the medals, I don't see uh, the medals and the bright colored cloth. I remember the people dying. I remember the people getting injured and th they're not the best of memories for me. But, um, um, you know, the, the fact that I got some of those things makes me proud. It also makes me embarrassed and you know, so uh, yeah. These days, I'm just trying to be a good person, trying to be the best person I can be, 
and every chance I get, I'll try to uh, talk about some great veterans that I knew and great people that are still doing good work, except for script writers. I hate script writers. So do we. We, we hate a lot of them ones we've met, too. <laughs> um, you, guys, you guys are doing a good job. I mean, come on. You got me in your first Freedom Fighter movie, and I died as a guard, you know, seven times. times. right? Didn't we kill you a couple times? You did, seven times. Seven times because, you know, we had our face covered, and you didn't have that many guys being the bad guys. So you're trying to show uh, what a whole whole you're group willing of to fall down. I mean, that's that's it. You know, there's younger guys that don't want to fall over. One time that I had my face showing, and and I'm supposed to get shooed as soon as he comes through the door. And I said, Dave, can I have one line? Like, oh, you got me. You know, he's like, no lines. So I had no lines other than getting shot. And then it's like, okay, let's get, kill you on the stairs. Okay, let's kill you over here. And so I had to cover up with a face mask every time. So I was, and you give me a different weapon so I wouldn't look the same with the other guys. So, uh, but that was a hoot too, because, uh, you know, that's kind of funny. I look at that going, I got to be an extra in a movie. <laughs> well, to be honest, we knew some of them we weren't going to use. We just really liked watching you fall down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I, you know, a lot of that was tripping and stumbling before you guys put the, the, the gunshots in. So that's... Uh, Oh, there was a pad there. It was a very <laughs> that, bad one. That, that's the other part that people don't see. You know, that, that you guys did a really good job. It's like, you know, watching the special effects guy shoot the blood behind my head or something, uh, which was kind of cool because it, it, as you're doing it, you don't see that. It's like, okay, uh, okay, Craig, you come through the door. You're going to get shot. You fall this way. No, you have to fall this way. And then, You have to fall that way. <laughs> You don't have to. It's just that's where the pad is, and the rest of the floor. Is <laughs> and that's where the guy with the special effects who's doing the blood thing coming out of the other oh, side man. of your head. And, Poor uh, Tom, he took it right in the face too. Yeah, but uh, you but you don't see that until you, when you guys did the film. I went, oh, hey, that looks that looks like it really happened. <laughs> we were just as surprised as you. I was. <laughs> yeah, but but you know that was kind of fun. So I appreciate you guys making me an extra in that. That got to be a hoot. I got to be a bad guy, so that's, that's it. I enjoyed that. Well, thank you for being it. That led to happy birthday, Dad. Yeah, but I I don't like how you got in the role for that. You just need. Well, that's because we had to put that old guy makeup on you, and you still refused to take it off. <laughs> well, and Dave says he says, "Hey, I just need an old guy for my film." I said, "Excuse me." You know, because, yeah, you don't have any lines. Give you any lines. Oh, oh, oh okay. <laughs> but that's that's my qualification. He was an old guy. And you were, and I think you said, yeah, like you're like the only old guy I know. <laughs> well, <laughs> Madison, wonderful eldest daughter of mine by 33 minutes, uh, asked me the other day if 30s were middle-aged. <laughs> I might have let an expletive escape my mouth before I could stop it. <laughs> Well, you know, it's uh, whoever said life begins at 40 was absolutely genius. And uh, this side of 70 is is really bizarre because I just still feel like there's a lot of stuff I'd like to try to do, a lot of stuff I want to learn to do. And I just wish I didn't waste as much time when I was younger. You know, so, uh, yeah, every chance I get, I'm going to try something new. Perfect. All right. Well, we've had a bit of a supersized episode here. I would have expected nothing less, Mr. Jorgensen. Uh, unfortunately, I'm going to have to run to get my butt kicked at the trainers actually, over Zoom, thanks to the lockdowns. Um, <laughs> a lot of step-ups, because that's all I really have here. Um, 
but I want to thank you for for being on the show. Um, and I'm going to open up the floor. Any last words you have for veterans, family of veterans, uh, friends of veterans, veterans of friends? <laughs> um, any advice you have? Uh, just this. I really want to thank you two, Dustin and David, both for giving us, us, the veterans, an opportunity to uh, probably say some things we probably haven't said in a long time. This, you know, to, uh, and by you guys asking specific questions, it opens it up as well. You've given us a vehicle that we can, you know, that we can get some things out that we probably wouldn't say otherwise. And it also gets some things, it unburdens us. I don't know if you know it, but we probably become a little bit happier after this, you guys are done filming uh, because of it as a result. Um, there's a lot of good veterans out there, a lot of wonderful people, a lot of guys who never got the credit and women too, who never got the credit for all that they did in uniform and they should be applauded. And, uh, you know, th those are my heroes. I got a bunch of heroes out there. And those are the people that I respect and, and really admire and admire you guys for doing what you're doing. Had you not done this, then our group and community probably wouldn't have got together again. Our Apache troop guys, our, our ranger guys, our veterans that um, uh, you've opened it. You've been, it's, it's like a, this flower that keeps opening up and gets better each time. So it's like, you know, appreciate it. So thank you guys very much for doing this and allowing us to, to share some of this stuff. And please buy 10,000 copies of Chasing Romeo. <laughs> Available on? <laughs> Amazon. Go to Amazon. If you buy 10,000 copies each, then I will stop writing. And that should be a joy to you guys. <laughs> Dustin, I'll let you go with the thank you. No, thank you, Loop, if you want, or, or however you want to close it out. I was just going to say, Craig, thanks again for being on here, man. Oh, and, hold on uh, a minute. Oh yeah, he's gonna, you got that. You got the full push. I thought he was just gonna walk away as you were thanking him. That was not. No, 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 no. I'm not walking away. That would be, you know, who would, you know, think commercialism is is such a. Uh, oh, oh, is that a copy of my book? <laughs> nice. You want me to put that as the screen cap on the movie? You just blatantly well, holding your product license. It, uh, the wonderful thing is that I'm uh, it, is I'm done with the second you know, the second one, and I will begin the editing process again. And as you guys know, there's editing that goes on forever. I'm not saying anything. Oh. No, no, two, two little glossy once-overs, and then you're good. <laughs> I love screenwriters who put the version on their screenplay and then send it in. You're like, oh, buddy, don't do that. Don't <laughs> write version 15 on your, everything is like version three max. Even if you've rewritten it 15 times, you're on version two. That's right. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I don't do editing at all. It's like, you know, so far, I, I think Cappy spilled something on number ed, number seven or number eight. And she goes, uh, I said, hey, you, you just spilled something on my editing. And she says, well, which one is it? I said, number eight. She goes, ah, you got 10 more to go. So, <laughs> so she's corrected that, yeah. All right. Um, going to close it out here by thanking the audience for being with us today on the know their story podcast uh go ahead and give us a like a subscribe uh click that five star button on uh, if you're on spotify or, or apple anything uh tell your friends tell your family tell your enemies if they'll listen a clicks a click in our view <laughs> right. um, but get on out there you know 
we we do these once a week uh if you're listening wondering why it didn't come out on monday we are switching over to tuesday uh for our release um so uh, thank you for joining us and get out there we we do this once a week we are not going to be able to get to every veteran out there no matter how long we live uh so get out there and <laughs> and you know touch base with the veterans in your life um, by the way i'm wearing the t-shirt for raider tactical and this is for julia valencia and gary drake who are uh you know gary is a marine uh, veteran and this is their company and they they do a lot of training and work with a lot of other veterans as well and, and law enforcement perfect all right with that we're gonna hit in you've been listening to the know their story podcast if you made it this far we must be doing something right let us know by subscribing to our channel and think about sitting down with the veterans in your life because saying thank you for your service should be the beginning of the conversation not the end